0: We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter one. I'm going to read verses one through five. Obviously, this is kind of our entry point into Habakkuk. We just finished a multi-year long series in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm um, going to be in this book now for uh, a little while. Not sure how long. Um, maybe a few years. No, I'm just kidding. There's only three chapters. Uh, but we're starting off this morning, verses one through five. Let's read it, and then I'll pray, and we'll we'll begin to to dive in. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations, now God responds, and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Let's stop there. Pray with me. God, I think even just the opening lines of this book Perhaps express our heart these days. We look out and we see so much violence, so much injustice, so much oppression, so much fear, so much anxiety, so much depression, so much pain. But maybe we don't even look out and see that. Maybe we look in sometimes too. We see it in our own heart the struggle with anger, the struggle with bitterness, the struggle with fear, the struggle with the stuff we're facing that maybe no one else knows about. And we cry out to you. Where are you? What are you doing? Are you even here? Well, Lord, we know that you are here. And... Um, we ask that you would use our time this morning to convince us afresh of your presence, but not just your presence, of your grace. That you're not just here, but you're moving for our good, even in the midst of hardship. God, help us, help me. Meet with us now, we pray. It's in the name of Jesus I ask these things. Amen. Um, okay, well, as God would have it, uh, we are now kind of, if you've, been, if you've been with us for a little bit, you know, uh, Joey is actually in uh, the book of Jonah, and uh, now I'm in uh, the book of Habakkuk. Both, uh, if you know your Bibles or familiar at all, are referred to as minor prophets, not because they're uh, minor in terms of unimportant, but because they're a smaller books, a little bit easier to manage. There's only three chapters in uh, the book of Habakkuk. Minor prophet, uh, major subject that he's going to be addressing here as we'll see. But um, as far as Jonah and Habakkuk are concerned, I just wanted to quickly show you, though they're similar in the sense that they're both minor prophets, there are quite uh, significant differences uh, that we should be aware of as we uh, begin here. Um, for one thing, Jonah, it's understood, came at probably a good century or more before uh, Uh, Habakkuk even shows up on the scene. Habakkuk's time frame is about the end of the 7th century BC, which would be like, you know, somewhere in the uh, 600s there, um, BC. And then, you know, Jonah was a prophet to the north. Uh, remember the, the kingdom of Israel kind of split up between the north and the south, Samaria and Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Jerusalem there. And uh, Jonah was in the north, but then ultimately, as we've seen, he's, he's even called to, to minister as a prophet beyond the people of Israel there uh, to uh, the Ninevites, so the Assyrians. Um, now, Habakkuk is... Uh, showing up after the northern kingdom had already fallen to Assyria, 722 B.C. And he's therefore uh, ministering to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, he's a prophet called uh, to the south regarding Jonah as a man, um, as a, a person, a prophet, uh, a personal uh, a prophet. We know a lot about him. You read the, the book of Jonah, and you actually come away with quite a bit of knowledge of, uh, of the guy himself. It's almost kind of, it reads almost like a biography of sorts, where there's a lot of personal info. He's kind of painted in three-dimension for us. Uh, you might not like what you see about him sometimes, but you come away going, Oh, I feel like I know this guy. He's a weasel, right? Like, kind of like a Peter-type figure, guy who's not walking with the Lord, or at least speaks loudly and boldly and kind of fumbles around, but God restores and really uses him. Uh, but then Habakkuk, interestingly enough, man, we don't know anything. I was looking around, like, they don't know anything. They're, they're looking at extra biblical sources, going, what are we supposed to make of this guy? He's not mentioned anywhere outside of this book, and in this book, we don't really get anything about him. All we get is stuff about, that we can kind of infer from his conversations and his dialogue with God and the stuff he's written. That's about it. We can patch some pieces together, but on the whole, he's essentially kind of a Judean man of mystery, right? Like, we don't know much about this prophet. And though we might not know much about him personally, uh, I would wager many of us in this room, if we've been Christians for any time at all, uh, we might actually be, we should probably be uh, well familiar with some of the verses and the things he's written. Might not know much about him personally, but my guess is you probably have heard some of the verses that are gonna come out. You might not have known it was from Habakkuk, but now you will. Um, Let me show you some of these verses, well-known, often quoted, uh, much beloved. Verses like Habakkuk 1.13, where um, Habakkuk writes this of God, you are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. I remember I first learned this in the NASB. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. And I first, I remember somebody first showing me this verse with reference to evangelism. Uh, because the idea is, listen, uh, brother, sister, as you're talking to someone, you can't just walk into the presence of God and assume, hey, the, the gates of heaven just gonna throw open to you because, you know, he's, he's a softy, he's a pushover, and, and, and gosh darn it, you're pretty good looking or whatever, right? Like, that's not how this is going to work. His eyes are too pure to approve of evil, any evil, any sin. He can't look upon sinners with favor. There's a dilemma. We need the gospel. We need the cross. That's Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk 2.4. If you've read your New Testament, undoubtedly you've come across this verse. Because it's quoted directly three times in the New Testament. Habakkuk 2.4. Paul uses this verse to really build out his doctrine of justification by faith in both Romans and in Galatians. It's where Habakkuk writes this. The righteous shall live by his what? Faith. His faith. That comes from Habakkuk. What about the majestic sweep of Habakkuk 2.14? Have you ever heard this one? God's uh, telling Habakkuk what's coming at the end of time, and he says this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You have heard that? He's disclosing for Habakkuk and for us, you know, his plan for the cosmos, where all of this is headed. It's headed towards a world sopping wet with glory, you could say. It's like a, uh, a sneak peek that we're kind of given in Habakkuk that really is further unveiled for us in the closing chapters of Revelation, right? But it's right here that the, the whole earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord and everyone will know. He'll be living among us, be in his presence forever. But I mean, these are some amazing verses. But if if I'm honest with you, the main reason why, one of the the main reasons why I was drawn to preach Habakkuk was actually because of the closing verses, the very last verses of this book. They are, in my opinion, some of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. They're at one and the same time raw, rugged, earthy, devastating, and yet also uh, sublime, heavenly, profound, beautiful, I'll show them to you. It's essentially the crescendo of, of, of everything we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. Here is, here is where the book is, is taking us. And uh, as we'll see in, in this text, it's essentially the prophet looking out at the prospect of God's coming judgment. All the, the hardship, the suffering, the loss. And he says essentially this, yeah, all of this may go all around me, right? The earth may shake and tremble, but if I have God, I have enough. in the book. That's how how it goes. Listen to this, verse 17, uh, Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I mean, that's one that you put up on your wall. That's one that you write on the tablet of your heart. That's one that gets you through some hard, hard times. This is why... um, I'm really calling this sermon series. I don't know if the contrast is clear enough, but belief amid the barrens, Habakkuk, belief amid the barrens. In other words, when all around you seems hopeless and lost, drought-stricken and barren, uh, when you go looking for fig on the branch or, or grape on the vine and you find nothing, can you still have joy? Can you still have, you know, uh, hope? Is there still life in your your heart, air in your lungs? Can we be like Habakkuk here? Have we learned the secret of this sort of faith? How do we get this? Where does it come from? That's what I'm after. Because that's what I think this book is all about. It's almost like, we're we're invited into this journey with the prophet because if you read those opening verses with me you know man the last verses sound a lot different than the first ones he starts off going how long where are you what are you doing and he ends going if i have you it's enough there's this journey from beginning to end here that we're invited on, uh, to, to, to 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 kind of follow along with habakkuk on It begins with struggle and lament, and it ends with singing and praise. It begins with a cry, and it ends with a song. I just want to go, how do you get there? There's a sort of pathway laid out in these pages. Um, If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, it may help you to, uh, for me to say this. Essentially, Habakkuk, it seems to me, is almost like the book of Job in miniature, Okay, you know the book of Job, there's like 42 chapters, it kind of goes on, you get lost in the poetry, uh, but if you were to boil it down into three chapters, the essential message there, you, you, you'd be in the book of Habakkuk. Is there godly dudes who are wrestling with the problem of evil and suffering in this world going, I don't get it, I don't see it, I've heard things about God, I think I understand who God is a little bit, but it's not lining up with reality, as I at least am looking out at this world, or at my life, or my heart, or whatever it may be. I don't get it. And in each of these books, God comes and helps them along. But if I could say, I actually think the book of Habakkuk, though it's shorter in chapter and page and verse, it actually takes us deeper into the issue than Job even does. If you know how the book of Job ends, it's almost kind of like a letdown to some degree. I understand it's it's essentially a picture and an illustration of, of, of what God's doing in more eternal and spiritual ways. But if you just read the book of Job superficially, the guy ends with just more stuff at the end. You're like, wait, so stuff went wrong, he trusted God, and then he was blessed even more for it. And by blessed, I mean he got more kids, more money, more livestock, more days to live out his life. And if you read that superficially, extract that from the overall sweep of Scripture, you just think, okay, cool, I come to God. He blesses me with health, wealth, prosperity here and now. But Habakkuk takes us somewhere else. Habakkuk corrects that false inference. Because in Habakkuk, man, not like Job. Job ends with more stuff. Habakkuk ends with nothing. With nothing. Save God. And God is enough. He's learned the secret beneath all other secrets that God is sufficient, even when everything else in this life gives way. That's where I want to be. That's where I want us to be. God is our treasure, our delight, our strength, our joy. I want us to have belief amid the barrens, because we're all in them. You're like, that sounds too poetic. I don't even know what the barrens are drought, desert, nothing? Is there still joy? Not slap-happy, plastic, fake joy, but the real thing. Is that possible? Well, I guess we'll find out. Um, This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, as we read. Uh really we're gonna focus in on verses one through four. Verse five is just to kind of get us into the like the dip our toes into God's response there, and I'll use that to do something. But um we're gonna look at three headings essentially. Uh first the occasion, second, the lament, and then third, the response. Okay. The occasion, the lament, and the response. Those should be in your worship guide. And if you really like more notes and that sort of stuff, the manuscript is available online for you. Um So the occasion, before we can really understand Habakkuk and kind of what he's talking about, we do need to spend a moment at the outset of this sermon series to just try to understand what's even happening in these moments, what's what's going on. That's one of the ways that we'll kind of get some light shed on this text so we can interpret it appropriately. Um, But as a way of kind of setting us up for this, let me first draw your attention to that opening verse where it says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet Saw, that's verse 1, the oracle that, the Habakkuk, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And all I want to bring out here, I just thought it was interesting. That word oracle uh, in the Hebrew, it's, um, it's the word masah. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, yeah, it can be translated oracle, and that's fine. But there's another meaning for it that I just found very interesting, and it's, the, it's, it, 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 it's also translated burden. Burden. It's used in other places, like for the stuff that you put on uh, your animals to carry, right? The beasts of burden carry uh, these uh, massas, if you will. And I thought it was uh, kind of picturesque for us, even have that in our mind at the very beginning, that really uh, what we have with Habakkuk is a man weighed down, you could say. A man carrying a load, a man with a burden on his back, a weighty word, And he's struggling under the poundage of it, trying to figure out what exactly does it mean? What exactly is God saying? What's happening here? You see, Habakkuk has been commissioned by God to minister in and around Judah during a time of great turmoil. Both uh, political turmoil, religious turmoil, on the political stage, uh, it's like the the seismic or the tectonic plates of, of power and all this are kind of shifting. The Assyrians who had, um, for over a century to this point, kind of ha- enjoyed power and, and sway in the ancient Near East are now starting to decline. And and the, the Babylonians are starting to rise up to fill that void. Uh, guys like, um, of course we know Nebuchadnezzar, but then also uh, his father Nabopolassar, um, cool name, but not not quite as as well known. You might you might steal that one for your next boy if you have a kid, <laughs> Nabopolassar. Um, but th- so Assyria is is is, is falling. Starting to dwindle, Babylon is starting to rise, and all these other smaller little you know nations like Israel and, and Judah. There, you know, they're trying to figure out how do they play in this stage because they're kind of got these overlords that are coming in, and they need people on their side, or they're going to be in trouble. So it's a, it's a time of great political turmoil. But then, related to that, it's also a time of just religious turmoil. I mean, because everything, you know, when life goes awry, when you're looking try to fix and help and figure out what your place is and stuff, uh, sometimes you're willing to compromise. You're willing to make some shifts in your you know, understanding to God, of God. And, uh, maybe I need help over here if God's not doing it. So what we have is the kings and others start to just I- introduce a lot of idolatry and a lot of mixed up uh, uh, r- religious stuff taken from the nations. One example would be um, a king uh, near the time of, of Habakkuk by the name of Manasseh. If you look at Second Kings 21, you can see he's a stellar guy. Trying to appease the Assyrian overlords, he sets up you know, Assyrian cult objects right alongside Yahweh's stuff in the temple. And we're told that, you know, he doesn't just kind of seek uh, guidance from Yahweh or his priests or his prophets. He's willing to go anywhere. Let's go to the omens. Let's go to, uh, you know, the fortune tellers. Let's go to the necromancers. And he even goes so far as to sacrifice his own kid to one of these false gods. Put his son on the, you know, in the flames. If it means I can get favor or I can get what I want in this life or whatever it may be there's a momentary kind of revival with Josiah, if you know King Josiah. Now, people don't name their boys uh, Manasseh, for good reason, but they do name their, their boys Josiah. So you probably even know a Josiah. Why? Well, because he, he, he momentarily stands up for the Lord, brings revival, reform, and all this, but it quickly devolves again when, his, when, when he's killed, and then his boys are put on the throne, and things go awry. There's Um, rampant idolatry, spiritual rebellion, flagrant injustice that marks this period in which Habakkuk is ministering. He's called to come and minister at a very tumultuous time, both politically and religiously. Um, To put a little bit more flesh on this for you, Jeremiah was likely a contemporary of Habakkuk, and Jeremiah is obviously a very big book. (laughs) So he's written a lot more about what he's seen, uh, you know, what he's watching there in Judah, and what he sees among the people and the sins and all of this stuff. Uh, Jeremiah's called the weeping prophet for a reason. Let me read to you a few of his words. It'll start to give you a picture of what Habakkuk's dealing with at this time as well. Is Jeremiah 9, 1 through 6. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had, um, I'm sorry, oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Doesn't sound like any place I'd want to be, especially not standing up for God in the midst of men like this. It's a challenge. Later, Jeremiah is going to talk about Jehoiakim, which is one of Josiah's boys who I said things start to devolve under. He talks about his, his, his reign and what his, uh, what his you know, kingly uh, authority was used for. This is Jeremiah 22, 13 to 17. Listen to this. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, And his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with a spacious upper room, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? He's speaking of Josiah there. Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is, it, is, it, is not this no, uh, to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. This is the political scene. This is the religious scene. This is what's going on. There's another prophet ministering at this time, and you don't even know who he is. You probably never heard of him. He's by the name of Uriah. You want to know why you never heard of him? Because Jehoiakim killed him. Just hunted him down when he was running and and, and had his boys kill him. Because he spoke for Yahweh and not the words that the king wanted to hear. And so this is the sort of situation that Habakkuk finds himself in. And he's looking out at this scene and he's saying, where in the world is God? Are you going to be here for me or not? Am I going to go the way of Uriah? Like, is that that what's going to happen? Where are you in the midst of this mess and this chaos? If you notice in the opening verses of our text, in an effort to kind of express the severity of the situation so far as he perceives it, he's just kind of stacking up the synonyms to try to just express the weight that he's carrying, what he sees, what he feels. I look out and I see violence, verse 2. Iniquity, wrong, destruction, strife, contention, verse three, and injustice, verse four. Just, they all getting at the same point, just, it's broken. Where are you? I'll tell you the only thing I don't see in all this mess. I don't see God doing anything about it. That's, where he's at. And of course, with this, we're invited to consider our own story. And I'll just invite you to do that now. You look out, and you ever relate to Habakkuk in this? I think we all probably can. You, You look out at the state of the church, the state of the world, state of your own heart, stuff in your life, where's God? Is he here? We sing about it. We talk about it. I don't get it. I don't see it. I mean, the mass shootings, I mean, I know you guys are watching the news too, or my phone, like, even just this morning, like, another one came in, like, Philadelphia. I don't know what the cause was or why, but another one. It's like, the news cycle can't even keep up with the shootings these days. Like, before one is even concluded, another another story breaks. And I I don't know if you're like me, but uh, maybe I'm becoming more pessimistic or scared or whatever, but it's like, you start to kind of look around and go, gosh, w- when's when and where is the next one gonna be? You know? And who? Like I said, that guy looks a little shady. Is it that guy? You know? This girl, She. Don't, I'm not sure about that. Who's the next one to come unhinged? And will it be at my kid's school? Will it be at my church? I mean, everyone's saying, oh, it's not gonna be us. It's somewhere out there. But it's starting to just feel like, man, Streets of Philadelphia—that's where I was for seminary and stuff. Why would it not be here, too? They just caught a guy, right? Wherever that was, the high school. That kid was trying to do that right there in the in the Bay Area. Here, you just go, what is going on? Where is God? God's not around. All this stuff seems so frighteningly possible because it's happening closer and closer to home. And of course. This is just the stuff that makes national news, right? Now, we could, we could go on for days about the stuff that NBC or, you know, Fox or CNN, they're going to roll up their cameras and check out the stuff that's going wrong in your life. But your little world is just being devastated. Things are crumbling. They'll make the headlines, but it's crushing you. You know, the threat of cancer, the loss of a loved one, the pressure at work, or the bank account that's drying up in view of inflation, the significant other that left you for someone else, the the fact that you're alone and you don't want to be, whatever it is. It's broken. It's hurting. And if you're you're honest, you just kind of sometimes want to say, God, where are you? What are you doing? So the question for us then is at this point, at the end of this first the first heading really is just what do you do with all this? I'll tell you what I think you do. You do what Habakkuk does. Namely, if I could put a word on it, you lament. You lament. It's a big biblical word. We'll flesh it out a little bit further, but you lament. You cry. You struggle towards God. You lament. So let's look now, not at the occasion, but now the lament, the lament. Um, I said at the beginning uh, that in this book, we really are being kind of invited uh, to journey along with the prophet from a place of despair to a place of joy. And the interesting thing, so far as I can see it, is actually this is the critical first step. It not just like, oh, you know, Habakkuk was having a crisis of faith, and he got off the rails, and then by the end he gets, no, this is actually part of being on the rails, are these opening verses. This is the critical first step, lament, crying out to God, honestly, authentically, about the stuff you're struggling with, the stuff you see, it seems to me when you look out upon suffering and evil and injustice and all of this stuff, and you wrestle with that, you really have a, only a few options so far as God is concerned and kind of what you make of it, what you do with it. On the one extreme, uh, it's what I'd call maybe a simplistic faith, all right? You could kind of blindly trust and go, oh, okay, I want to be a good Christian, I want to be a a good follower of Jesus. I know his word says all things work for good. And so therefore, I will, you know, even though I feel like I'm dying inside and I don't understand, I will put on that smile and I, gosh darn it, I will trust, right? I'll stuff it down for another Sunday. Too blessed to be stressed, right? Throw out your little slogans. Like that's the Christian way. And I would call that simplistic faith. And I would call that an error. I call it wrong. Because you're not feeling it, you're not experiencing it, you are struggling, and guess what? That's okay. And we'll see God invites us to draw near in our struggle and our misunderstanding and our confusion. Actually, we set ourselves up for a future problem when we just stuff it down. And the gap between what we're really feeling, who we really are, starts to widen, uh, you know, between kind of what we present. Big smile, plastic, but there's no roots to this faith. It won't be there for you in the day of trouble. On the other um, side of the extreme, I I would call it uh, simplistic skepticism, all right? This is where you see the stuff. You see the misalignment, like, okay, this is a hard world. God's supposedly good. Uh, If I'm seeing all this stuff, if I'm experiencing this hardship, God, therefore, must not exist. Forget it. This is a joke. Christianity is a joke. He's either, he's either good and not in control and that's why bad stuff is happening or he's, 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 he's in control but not good and that's why he's letting this stuff happen. But either way, the God of the Bible can't be real. And you just off the cuff discard it. It's a superficial skepticism. We haven't really wrestled with the issues and I just showed my hands, that's, or showed my hand, that's what I think we're called to do instead. Habakkuk is leading us right through the middle of these two extremes. Not simplistic faith, not simplistic skepticism, but honest wrestling. Honest struggling with God. Right? He keeps these two in tension. He's not given to simplistic faith and blind belief. He's being honest about his doubts and his struggles. Almost too honest that you kind of like kind of start to, you know, blush a little bit as you read this going, are we allowed to read this in church? How long, God? Have you forgotten me? Right? And you go, well, it shows up in enough Psalms, I'm pretty sure God is trying to get at something. And so he's honest. It's not simplistic faith. But on the other hand, he's he's not given a simplistic skepticism either because he's not just gone away with his, you know, with his struggles and then, you know, blogged about it to create an atheist, you know, group. No, he's talking to God about his struggle. He's still engaging God. He's wrestling with God. He's he's bringing these things to God, and because of that, he'll have a richer relationship with God when it's all said and done. Because God ain't going to let him dangle there on the end of of the hook, right? God cares. God is going to meet with him by the time this thing is done and help him understand a little bit more. And even what he doesn't understand becomes okay in the view of what he does and who God is. Perhaps this is why Paul would call it a fight for faith, right? In 1 Timothy 6.12, 2 Timothy 4.7. It's not just like a, like a you know, cruise control faith. Eh, all right, we're good. Or Tesla model faith where you, like somebody else is driving for you and you just sit back and enjoy, right? This is a fight. This is, there's wrestling involved. This is a struggle. You know, you're not always going to feel. You're not always going to understand but you will come out the better for it. Our relationship with God will be richer. Our trust will be deeper. Our joy will be more resilient. But you don't get there, I don't think, if you skip this first step. Lament. I love what one commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, says at this point. He says this, Habakkuk is not content to say, whatever my God ordains is right, and leave it there in a spirit of Resignation. Like Job, he argues with God and expostulates, I don't know what that big fancy word means, with him and thus reaches a clearer understanding of God's character and a firmer faith in him. The old easy assurances that peace, health, long life, and prosperity were tokens of divine approval have collapsed in the face of experience. But Habakkuk, in hardship and privation, comes to know God more fully and to rejoice in him for his own sake and not for the benefits he bestows. You see that? He, he wasn't willing, Bruce says, and I think rightly, to say at the beginning, whatever God ordains is right, and kind of like, you know, too, best, too blessed to be stressed, and kind of move on, stuff it down, no worries, it's all good. No, he wasn't willing to be cheap or plastic with his faith. Now, here's the amazing thing. He may come out at the end. In fact, he probably will come out at the end and essentially say just that. Whatever God ordains is right. But he can say it with authenticity, with honesty, with a deeper understanding of what that means and confidence in the God that he's talking about. Now it's, it's, it's a simple faith, yes, but not simplistic. Are, are you with me? Still able to say the very same thing, but now it's got roots that run deep into your soul. Because you've wrestled with God, you've fought for faith. It's kind of like that childlike faith that we see in Psalm 131, where it says, Listen, I'm like a weaned child. I, I, I don't know all the answers to the stuff that's too great for me, but I've come to trust my mother. She's good. Or I've come to trust, in other words, God. <laughs> it's like a kid trusting. I don't know how it all works. But I have a deep rooted faith. Whatever God ordains is right. There's no fig, there's no grape, there's no harvest. My joy is still strong because I have God. It's amazing. It's amazing. Let me, um, before we dive a little deeper into this idea of um, lamenting, um, let me make something clear. Lamenting is not mere complaining, okay? Like God doesn't say, hey, come to me in whine. You know, just listen. Like, just come and tell me all the things you don't like about life, right? Like, let me hear it, you know, fill out another form and tell me all the ways I've let you down. Right, this isn't. this isn't an invitation to gripe or to accuse, to blame and to, you know, We've all been around those folks that, that, that tend to complain rather you know, than be, kind of be grateful and all of these things, where it's almost like the world kind of owes them something and God owes them something and nothing is good enough, that sort of a thing. That's not, I mean, that's not the way of Christ. That's not what God is trying to lead us into here. That's not where Habakkuk is going. Um, biblical lament is not the clay finding fault with the potter. Right? Isaiah and Paul have already said no. They've already rebuked that notion in Isaiah 29 or Romans 9.20. You know, that's the sort of thing, if you remember Israel in the wilderness, and they're grumbling. The, God did not commend their behavior there. He, he condemned it. But the big critical issue underneath that, if you look at it carefully, if you went back and read Exodus 16.17, their grumbling was not wrestling with God in hope. Their grumbling was accusing God in, re- in rebellion. That, that's what was happening. You brought us out here to kill us. I, even though he had already shown his character and his love and his kindness for them, there was none of that. It's just, I want food and I want it now. So lamenting, biblical lament, is, is not just mere complaining. If I could flesh it out for us, uh, biblical lament is, is complaining in God's direction, on the basis of God's word, with an expectation of God's response and help. I'll read that one more time just because that's what we're gonna flesh out here um, in a moment. Biblical lamenting is, in my view, complaining in God's direction on the basis of God's word with an expectation of God's response and help. It's a big difference. We'll take them one by one. Each of those elements there. It's complaining, sure, fine, maybe so. I think we can put that word on it. But it's complaining in God's direction. It's not just kind of like venting to your friends and trying to get, you know, like a group of followers that agree with you and create the echo chamber that say, yeah, life is horrible and God's horrible. No, it's complaining in God's direction. It's prayer, in other words. It's talking to, it's personal relationship with him. So, you know, uh, Habakkuk, we see he opens up. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. I mean, this is a prayer and he's talking directly to God. He's complaining in God's direction. And the amazing thing is, if you caught what's happening here, he is complaining about the God who doesn't hear his cry to the very God whom he says doesn't hear his cry. It's a wonderful irony and it's loaded with implications for you and I. It's beautiful. Ah, God doesn't hear me. You don't hear me. Why am I talking to you then? Because I think you hear me still. Right? I'm complaining in God's direction. It reminds us here that there is often doubt tucked within our faith. And faith tucked within our doubt. You know, we tend to think, so far as faith is concerned, we think of it mainly in the positive, kind of the positive charge of faith, if you will, which is like faith on the mountaintop. You know, God, everything is great. God, I love you. And the praise and the song, right? We think of faith in the positive charge. This is faith in the negative charge. This is faith in the valley. This is faith when you can't take another blow because it's gonna be the KO punch. But you still believe that God is there and he cares somehow and he hears you. You see, there's, there's always going to be doubt tucked within our faith and faith tucked within our doubt. At least there should be. That's part of the fight, right? Habakkuk could give up on God because he doesn't feel like he hears, but instead he doubles down and cries all the louder, which if you know some of the parables uh, from Jesus, he tells us to do just that. Keep knocking. Keep coming. I thought of that father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark 9. What an amazing passage this is, when, when, when he cries out, he, he wants Jesus to heal his boy, and, and he goes, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. You hear what he's saying, it's that irony again. It's I believe, but I don't. I'm struggling to believe. There, 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 there's, there's, there's doubt tucked within my faith, and faith tucked within my doubt. I'm coming, that's why I'm coming. But I'm still struggling. It's a spiritual schizophrenia. You ever been there? Sorry, there's no pill for this. It's the Christian life. It's hard. We go back and forth and up and down. We believe, but we don't. We struggle. And so, for Habakkuk, When he says these sorts of things to God, where are you, what are you doing, why don't you hear? It's a backdoor expression of confidence in him. It's a negative charge of faith, otherwise he wouldn't be coming. I remember hearing a story from Russell Moore in one of his books, and he's talking about, he's telling the story about how he went to, um, they were adopting uh, uh, a child from Russian orphanage there, and when they walked into the orphanage, he just says the silence was haunting. There were babies all over the place. Babies everywhere, in every crib. But no baby was crying, not because they didn't need anything, but because they slowly learned nobody comes when we cry. You see, crying out is actually an expression of faith. It's an act of faith. Complaining in God's direction is the first part of biblical lamenting. We can consider it for ourselves now, and the invitation to us, I think, is pretty plain. Be honest. It's a wonderfully free thing, and it's what I want so desperately in this church. Man, I can't, if I'm honest, I can't stand Christian plastic fake, the slap-happy little songs. And Yes, we may feel joyful. That's fine. Absolutely, we should. But it's always mingled with sorrow. There's always struggle until we get to glory. I mean, we're in the wilderness, and I... I You know, so for us to pretend like, oh, I don't have any, for me, it's just that. It's pretending, and it's dishonesty. The invitation here is actually to be real, to talk to God about what we really feel. In my view, it's like we're either lamenting or we're lying. I know that sounds a little forceful. I don't mean to say we're always in the doldrums, right? Like, oh, like those Christians, they're always bummed. But I do mean to say we're always gonna be wrestling, and God's always going to be testing us, always going to be expanding the boundaries of our faith. And just like working out at the gym doesn't necessarily feel good when you're expanding those big you know, biceps uh, and it hurts the next day, so too when God's expanding our faith. It's hard. You're gonna, have, you're gonna come to the boundary line of it and go, ah, I, I don't trust you for this. Help me, I believe, but I don't. And the invitation is, man, talk to him. Cry out to him. He cares. We won't get to uh, the heights of faith and joy with Habakkuk in chapter 3 if we don't pass through the depths of pain and lament with Habakkuk in chapter 1. We don't just strut from mountaintop to mountaintop. We grow acquainted with the cross, with Gethsemane's shadow. We wrestle with God in the valley. We lament. It's a normal part of the Christian life, and I encourage uh, this church, us, to engage it. We lament in God's direction, but we don't just lament or complain in His direction. We do so on the basis of His Word. On the basis of His Word. And I want to show you this now. Let's see what my time is like. Okay. Is it warm in here? Or is it just this thing on my face? I'm not sure. Element number two on the basis of His Word. Again, we're not just grumbling like clay to the potter saying, I want this or that. We're not just complaining on the basis of our own unchained desires, self-centered, you know, wishes. God is not our genie and we're trying to, you know, rub the lamp to get him to do what we want. That's not what we're invited into here. It It is complaining in God's direction on the basis of his word. Not my will and whim, but his will and his word. In other words, you could put it this way, it's as if we're looking at our open Bibles and then we, we, we look out at the world and we go, what I see you say here about yourself and about your plans and about who you are and about what you're doing, I don't see it out there. I don't get it in my life. There's a disconnect. It's, it's, it's not fitting together. Like I'm trying like to, you know, fit that puzzle piece together and you got one left and somehow it doesn't fit. You're like, I don't know what to do with that. And so you cry out to God. This is what Habakkuk is doing here. It's marked off straight away, actually, by the opening address. Did you catch it in verse 2? How does he begin this? Oh, Lord. And if you notice in your English translations, uh, the Lord there should be capital L O R D, which is the English version way of getting at the covenant name of God Yahweh, the name that God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. He says, "Who do I say is sending me? And who are you?" And He gives them His name. This is the name He gives them only them, so that they would know Him, be in covenant relation with Him, with them, or with Him. He was establishing that sort of relationship in that moment loaded up with promises and, and other things, commitments to this people. And so when Habakkuk opens up his, his, his lament with, oh Lord, oh Yahweh, he knows what he's doing and he knows the God to whom he's complaining. He's essentially saying covenant God. You're the one who established this relationship in the first place, revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. If, if, if what you say about yourself is true, if the plans that you said you had for us is true, where is it? I don't get it. I don't see it. It's not lining up. Help me. It's really interesting to note um, if you're familiar with some of the other prophets and the, the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll know that largely this is what happens. God commissions the prophets to uh, go with his word to his people. And it's never usually a very good word. It's usually on the basis of, the, people call the prophets in many ways like covenant lawyers, uh, filing covenant lawsuits, if you will. Like here's the terms of the covenant and you're breaking them, people, and You need to return to God. We think of prophet is like those guys that sit on the clouds or something and go, I see in the future. And that's part of it to some, de- to some degree, but it's all rooted in covenant. And they come and they say, you're breaking the covenant. It's not going well. Uh, you know, it's not going to go well if you do. Return, return. But the interesting thing about Habakkuk is it, the whole direction, the whole action kind of moves in, in the, the other way. He's not going to the people and saying, you're breaking the covenant, although he sees that. He's actually going to God and saying, God, I'm not sure you're keeping the covenant. You're the covenant God. You're Yahweh. You're the Lord. Why are you permitting all of this injustice and evil and oppression? It doesn't feel like you're upholding your side. He comes to God with it. The whole book is that way. It's very interesting very interesting. You say you're sovereign. You say you're holy. You say you're just. You say you're good. You say you love. You say you have grace. You say you're merciful. Where is it? I'm not seeing it. You know, interestingly enough, if you really kind of look at what, and I I might not have time to to do this. um, Yeah. Um, If you look at what Habakkuk complains about, it's awesome. I mean, presupposed behind kind of within every complaint there's like biblical truth about who god is what he said he he's like and that's why he's complaining you can see that he's 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 complaining on the basis of god's word in god's direction he's looking at the word and he's going okay you're the covenant lord where's where's your upholding of it or he goes on and he talks about you know how long will i cry for help and you won't hear or cry violence and you won't save well Behind that perhaps in his mind is the story of the Exodus where the people grumbled and groaned and God came. And he reveals himself as the one who leans near to the hurting and the the broken. And he goes, "I, I know you're the God who hears but you don't hear me. Right, it's on the basis of his word that he's complaining. Or I know you're a God of justice, why are you letting it be perverted and twisted? Or I know the law isn't just like the law of the land like here in America. The law is like a transcription of your, 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 your very own character. You gave it to us on Sinai and he says the law is paralyzed. The Torah is paralyzed. It's like, you know, that friend who was the paralytic or that, that guy who had those friends of the paralytic and they had to like lift him up and carry him because he was, he, he was helpless. And the law feels like that. Your law and you're not doing anything about it. It's power powerless here. What's going on? But You see how behind all of his complaints is an understanding of his word. And he's wrestling with this misalignment between what he sees in an open Bible and what he sees going on out in the world and in his own life. And again, we gotta ask, You know, have you ever been in this place? Have you ever been in this place where you open your Bible, it's maybe a nice, you know, Warm, fuzzy devotional in the morning, at you your coffee and the kids are still asleep and wow, this is what a beautiful thing. I got great feelings and thoughts for this day. And then you go out into the day and you just get steamrolled. A truck you know, drives over you on your way to, you're just out the door. Not, not literally, figuratively, right? Just why does it feel like the two disconnect? You say you're good, you say you're holy, you say you're just. Why are you letting this happen to me? doesn't feel this way so what do you do well it's the same answer i'm going to keep giving it you lament you complain in god's direction on the basis of his word you do what habakkuk does here but more than that you do all of this with an expectation that god hears and he will respond and he will help so that's element number three. We don't just complain in God's direction on the basis of his word. We complain with an expectation of his response. And um, this whole idea of expectation uh, is implicit in our text in these first, you know, four verses or so, um, because he wouldn't be complaining to God if he didn't think God heard. But it gets even more explicit later in uh, Habakkuk 2.1, because believe it or not, God's going to respond and he's gonna still struggle with the response and it doesn't just get fixed nicely. In fact, it makes the matter worse, which we'll see probably next time. And he continues to struggle and wrestle. But then Habakkuk 2.1, listen to the expectation that God will respond. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me concerning my complaint. I, mean, I love that. See, he's not just venting. He's not just complaining and trying to gain a, a you know a rabble around him that feel the same way. He wants God to speak. He believes God will speak. He knows that God can help make sense of these things and he's looking for it. He's watching. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? How are you going to help? The question is, is are we? Are we do we carry this all the way through? Sometimes what I found is I mean, you see this is why you realize the negative charge of faith. There really is a lot of faith with a kick in this. It's a lot easier to maybe pray for a few moments and go, eh, God didn't answer. Let's go fix it ourselves. Let me go take care of it. That, that's my default, right? Uh, okay, he didn't answer. Let me just go do it. Figure out another way. Plan B if Plan A doesn't work. Fine, but we tried God, but He's waiting. You're going to answer. I'm going to wait right here until you do. You're going to help. I can't wait to see it. That's biblical lament, and this leads us really to the last heading here. We'll move from the occasion and the lament now to the response. The response. Um, and for now, we can just only kind of scratch the surface of God's response as we look at verse 5. Uh, truthfully, his response keeps going all the way down to verse 11, but that's going to open up a whole new can that I do not have time to, to deal with uh, this morning. We'll probably, God willing, wrap around next time for it. For now, I simply want to kind of distill this singular verse, you know, down to its kind of basic principles. And I want to show you how it ultimately is fulfilled in, in the coming of Christ and, and the cross and the gospel. Um, that Jesus ultimately is the answer to our disjointed dilemmas. He's God's ultimate response, right? But let me show you. So here's how God responds um, in verse 5 there. It's just kind of the beginning. Look among the nations, he says, and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He said, you don't see me, but I'm working. And even if I told you, you wouldn't even get it. And Habakkuk doesn't get it. He's talking about the surprising way he's going to go about making wrong right. Delivering Habakkuk and the righteous remnant and things like this. There in Judah. But the basic distillation, if we could just kind of break it down to its basic principles, here's what we see. Even when we don't think God is present and working, He is. That's the first thing. I mean, God's right there on Habakkuk's lament. Hey, I'm here. I hear you, and I'm working. <laughs> but then, even more, even when we don't think God hears and cares, He does. And even when we can't find it in us to believe such things are true, they are. I mean, that's, that's the basics. I'm here, I'm present, I care, I'm up to good, and even when you can't believe it, because he said, you're not gonna be able to believe it if I told you. Even if you can't believe it, even if it goes beyond your, the boundaries of your faith at this point, it's true. Breaking that down. Now, now, Let me show you how Christ and the gospel come in as the ultimate fulfillment of this. Do you know that Paul, in Acts 13, 41, when he's preaching, he's actually going to grab a hold of Habakkuk 1, verse 5, and he's going to use it as a way of saying, listen, you know, this whole idea that God moves in mysterious ways, and that he's, he's, he's moving to deliver and save in ways that you wouldn't understand or, 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 or sometimes really struggle with. He grabs a hold of that verse and says, that's what the cross was all about. Don't overlook the cross. Don't leave the cross. Don't laugh or scoff at the cross. It looks like nothing, but it is everything. It looks like, you know, God is nowhere uh, to be found, but he's right here. And he draws on Habakkuk 1, five to make that connection. And Paul would say in a similar vein uh, later in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says it looks on the surface like nothing, like foolishness. But there's more power in that dead man on the cross than there is in a million sticks of dynamite. Whatever nuclear weapons, you know, the powers that be have these days. More power in that cross than anything man could ever conjure up. But on that day, as as, as they stood around the cross, the disciples and things trying to follow God, then everyone's just scratching their heads. Everyone's going, We thought he was the one, we thought he would deliver. I mean, all these people around the cross are mocking him, going, if God's really with you, come down. And he didn't come down. Implication? God, God must not be with him. God must not be with us. Because we put all our chips in on Jesus. What now? Wickedness won. But it didn't. You see how this plays out just like where is God? He's right here. He's right here. He's not... Abandoning in those moments as he hangs there on the cross. He's delivering. The very thing Habakkuk wants, the very thing those guys, those disciples want, the very thing you and I want. That's what he's doing. He's not, he, he, he's not uh, uh, you know, left us alone. The very moment we feel most alone is when he's most present. He's drawn so close at this point that it's like he's literally entering our lament. That's what the cross is. Is God coming so close that he's entering our grief, entering our struggle, entering our pain, entering our you know all of this stuff, entering our lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. That's a psalm of lament. Where are you? Jesus is uttering those words because he's taking this stuff for us so that when he comes out on the other side of the grave, then he's got a song to sing and he invites us to join the chorus. And it's, just, it's what we see in the back, just groaning, oh, but then to joy and song, crying out and singing by the end of it. This is Jesus drawing near and nobody saw it foolishness weakness becomes wisdom and power the source of our salvation you wouldn't believe it if i told you but i'm right here and i'm working and i'm saving so the cross becomes this paradigm for you and i now. i'm oh what a privilege to be on the far side of the cross cross becomes this paradigm uh, in which we can now kind of understand and interpret all of our hardship and our suffering and our struggle. It's the grid that we kind of run everything through. So when you go, God's not with me. God's abandoned me. God's no good. God's, you know, trying to hurt me. Man, we can run it through. That's exactly what they thought as they looked at the cross. That's exactly what, what people were saying. And was it true? No. The exact opposite was true the inverse was true it's an ironic salvation we have an ironic savior you think he's abandoned you chances are he's as close to you as he's ever been that's what the cross teaches us it's unbelievable you may have heard about that shooting that took place another one here outside a church just a couple days ago this time I think it was in Iowa It wasn't a mass shooting, turned out to be a domestic kind of thing, but nonetheless tragic. And because it happened at a church, we got to hear kind of what, how the church responded, how they got through it. It wasn't just something in the news in that way, it was very personal, and it it was uh, something that we could look in on a service and see what they would say and what they would do. And the amazing thing is, this is the truth that got them through. The sort of stuff we're talking about right now lead pastor shared a few words. I can't reiterate them all, but here's a a few that, oh, I've gone too long. Sorry. Here's a few that stood out. I'll I'll end here with these uh, two quotes. As he was calling people to prayer, he said this, we want to grieve in such a way that says we have hope beyond our grief because we do know that for two precious sisters that were lost last night, the the old ex-boyfriend ran up and or drove up and shot one shot the one and then her friend and then killed himself. He said they had already been found by Jesus, which means death won't be the ultimate word over their life. And it won't be the ultimate word over this church. This place can't be marked by the message of death when we have the one who conquered death that we worship. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to celebrate the resurrection with tears. We're going to trust in the God who is bigger than our pain. We aren't going to act like our pain isn't real. Very good. Not simplistic faith. Because it is. Our pain is real. But we also aren't going to act like God isn't real. Because he is. We're going to lament. We're going to complain. We're going to cry in God's direction on the basis of his word with expectation that he will answer and help. Because we've seen him do it so many times, ultimately expressed in the cross. And at the very end of the evening, he quotes John Stott, and this is where I'll, I'll leave you guys. It's amazing. This is um, The Cross of Christ by, by John Stott, a little section here. I could never myself believe in God if it wasn't for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world of brokenness. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding with thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings became more manageable or become more manageable in light of his. There was still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The other gods, he quotes, a, uh, I think it's an old hymn here. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. That's what gets us through. When we're just going, where are you, God? Why? When we're struggling, when it feels like he's absent, we realize that the wounds of Jesus, the now scars of Jesus, tell us a different story. He invites us to come and talk and complain in his direction. And he will weep with us like he wept with Mary and Martha outside the tomb of Lazarus. But he also may give us a song to sing by the end of it when he lets his resurrection power break in. And he takes you deeper into his heart and shows you more of his plan. It's amazing. Let's pray. God, we come to you now, broken people. Hopefully there's no one in this place that would pretend to be otherwise. Let's let the masks fall. Let's let the pretending stop. God, you're not honored by our our, our plasticity. You're not not impressed with our song if they don't come from our heart. So we just cry out to you now together. God, use this time. Meet with us in whatever our personal struggle, Show us where you are. Show us what you're doing. Show us that you're here and that you care, that you're moving for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.